The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. Beijing orders parks, malls and museums to close as COVID infections in the capital hit a record high, while case numbers also surge in the south and west. The dollar and treasury yields pair back as the Cleveland Fed's Loretta Mester tells CNBC the latest U.S. inflation print is encouraging, but that the trend needs to be sustained. Right now, we're at a point where we're going to enter enter a restrictive stance of policy. And at that point, I think it makes sense that we can slow down a bit um, the rate of pace, the pace of increase. Uh, Crude oil rebounding from a 10-month low after Saudi Arabia denies a report OPEC Plus is considering raising output at next month's meeting. And Bitcoin falls below 16,000 for the first time in two years as the collapse of FTX reverberates through the sector with crypto lender Genesis reportedly on the verge of bankruptcy. Chinese authorities are ramping up restrictions in the capital, shutting museums, malls and parks after warning Beijing is facing its toughest test to date against the pandemic. Cases are also rising in the manufacturing hubs of Guangzhou and Chongqing, raising further concern for the economy and whether authorities will follow through on an expected easing in its zero-COVID approach next year. A quick look at the Chinese markets. Uh, in session today, we are peeling back on Hong Kong and also Shenzhen. Both markets trading down more than 1%, though a slight uh, green moving on to the Shanghai Composite and the CSI 300 Index. Meantime, uh, let's get some views on what's happening on the ground. Mike Curley joining us, Director, Asia Equities, Portfolio Manager, Janice Henderson Investors. Mike, it's a situation where it's been very stop-start now on the COVID restrictions. We had uh, almost what seemed to be a green light after the Party Congress recently, but now COVID cases have soared and we've seen the restrictions come back into force. How do we think about the situation on the ground? Well, I don't think uh, anyone thought that this was going to be easy. Um, We couldn't go from a a position of having COVID lockdown at, at, at every uh, small indication of cases uh, to something more relaxed without this being a, a stop-start kind of, of regime. Um, my view is, is that we're going to be like this really until the spring next year. Um, we'll get cases, we'll get local lockdowns um, and hopefully avoid uh, mass lockdowns. But that really does depend on the data. The next week, two weeks, we'll really test the resolve of the government about their 20 measures and, and COVID loosening. What long-term implications are there here? Because we've been watching this situation for a while now and we've seen an enormous disruption to supply chains where a lot of companies are just simply frustrated and have had enough. Are we genuinely seeing, do you think, uh, the relocation away from some of the Chinese supply chains because of this ongoing COVID uncertainty? Um, I, I think it's just more of the same. It's disruption, not change. Um, you know, China is, is far too embedded in the global supply chain to to be replaced easily. Um, I mean, incrementally it will change, but not purely because of COVID, but more about uh, geopolitical reasons and and, and diversifying supply bases, etc. Um, it does affect Chinese growth clearly, um, and it's consumption that really pays, not not investment and trade. Um, it's people's appetite to consume. Um, is what really will uh, take time to, to recover. 
Another reason to uh, diversify away from Chinese equities or actually does it provide an entry point at a lower level for Chinese equities? Well, uh, this is a really good question. Um, I mean, I think if you ask, if you give yourself 12, 18 months and say, well, look, you know, do you think China will be higher than it is now, considering that the, the valuations currently at record lows in Asia, only Pakistan is cheaper by, by value. Um, so, you know, if you look at it on that basis, then it's got to be an opportunity. But, but I, I can't say whether that opportunity will be 10% lower or, you know, this is a bottom, um, maybe more. So I've got to be honest, Mike, you didn't feel me full of confidence there. We don't own this stuff then, do you no? think? Well, I, I, there's so much uncertainty. I mean, it, 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 it's a bit like the US and the, and the UK and Europe. We all know it's going into recession. It's the, it's the most uh, well-known recession. China's the most well-known recovery. Um, and But we just don't know when it really kicks off. And that that's the issue. From a valuation point and looking at stocks, this is a terrific opportunity. But you may not get that return for a, a number of months, quarters, maybe even years. See, my problem is, Mike, we, we, the world has moved on from COVID. The world has mm. moved on and we just learned to live with it. We had solid enough drugs to allow most of communities to get back to some form of normality. Question marks remain about how much it's still in the community. Question marks remain about what long COVID means. But China hasn't moved on. I just don't understand how the first nation into COVID is still the last nation in COVID and is one of the most important, if not the most important economy in the world. It, it just doesn't fill me full of confidence that the policymakers are giving us a good bedrock to buy their equities, which look cheap. Well, I, I think there's two main reasons. Firstly, the efficacy of the, of the uh, Chinese drugs was not as good as what we experienced here in the West. So there is a bit more reluctance in terms of uh, letting COVID wild in the same way that we've done here. Um, although that is improving. Um, the second point is that unlike us, it, we had, um, it was the young people we struggled to get vaccinated. In China, it's the old people. Um, and obviously they're the ones who are most vulnerable. Um, and there's 60% of the population, yeah, 60% of the population over 60. I mean, you know, this is a lot of old people potentially. Um, so I think they've been very wary about that. And also you've got to remember that the, the propaganda machine in, in, in China has been pushing the fact that this policy is, has been successful, massively successful, comparing it with the number of deaths in the US, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's going to take time to wean people off that. Firstly, getting them vaccinated. Um, secondly, change the, the rhetoric within the Communist Party to, to get people to accept COVID. Uh, it's going to happen. And when it does, you know, when you've got 45% savings rates, the pent-up demand could be enormous, a bit like we saw here. Um, but we just get a, need to get over these next few months and quarters. Like certainly challenges here, but if you uh, just mentioned that the dividend story, which you flagged up to us, I mean, uh, how do you see the yield story playing out for investors when there are still enormous uncertainties that you've just fleshed out there? Yeah, um, I mean, corporates are, are suffering. You know, in this slow environment in, in China, you are seeing earnings downgraded, um, especially in, in areas which are cyclically sensitive. Um, so dividends will be at risk this year. Um, uh, sorry, well, into next year, because it, a lot of Chinese companies only pay once a year. So so this year they were really good because you're paying on 21, uh, 2021 earnings. Next year, obviously, they might not be so good because they'll be paying on 2022 earnings, which as we know, it's going to be a struggle, especially into the year end. However, companies are very cash flow generative. The payout ratios are, are low. 
Um, so we're quite confident that dividends will be much more resilient than earnings, though it's difficult to paint a picture of, of dividend growth in China at this point. Mike, if our viewers are not convinced, and I've got to be honest, I think there's a lot of issues we've raised, one or two more that we need to raise as well, about concerns about the relationship Trans-Pacific and what that means for international investors. If our viewers are still concerned at this point, where are the best opportunities elsewhere in Asia to put their money? Well, I, I think you can really break Asia down into two at the moment, the North, North Asia and South Asia. Um, so North Asia, we've got issues. Um, China, domestic issues. Korea and Taiwan, whether we're going to see um, demand in technology sector, especially, but for other areas as well. So we have to rely on, on global growth there. So probably the, the, the most obvious beneficiaries clearly are probably South Asia, um, where we're beginning to see more opening up. Um, tourists are returning to, to Thailand and Indonesia. Um, and that will probably be the safest place. However, However, the valuations support the complete opposite. So as we go through the next two, three quarters, um, if China gets its act together, that's really beneficial for the rest of North Asia. Um, so my view would be next two quarters, South Asia, for the rest of the year, probably North. Mike, really good to get your views. Uh, it is uh, you know, very, very difficult to work out at the moment. Thank you for negotiating uh, the topic for us. Mike Curley, who is Director, Asia Equities Portfolio Manager, Janice Henderson Investors. Right. I did, this next story, Karen, you read it in the headlines. I've got, I've got to be honest. There's got to be something more in this next read and next bit of sound. Otherwise, I'm going to say something blatantly obvious. So let me just go for it one more time, all right? Because in the headlines, it didn't convince me. I don't know about you lot out there. I don't know about you, Karen, but we'll just go through it. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester says inflation will need to slow further before she's ready to stop pushing for further rate hikes. Ta-da! Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? Mester told CNBC the central bank is beginning to see good signs that price pressures are easing. Listen in. We're at a point where we're going to enter and a restrictive stance of policy. And at that point, I think it makes sense that we can slow down a bit um, the rate of pace, or the pace of increases. We're still gonna have to raise the funds rate, um, but, but we're at a reasonable point now where we can then sort of now be very deliberate um, in setting monetary policy to get back to price stability and be more judicious in balancing the risk so as to minimize the pain of that journey back to price stability. I'm bemused. <laughs> Our headline is accurate. The dollar and treasury yields paired back after those Mester comments. Right. There is nothing that Loretta Mester said there that I haven't heard dozens of times, that I haven't read dozens of times, that the market doesn't know already. Before you come in, why don't we see if anything from the San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly is more enlightening. Have we got some sound from her? All right, let's listen to Mary Daly. As we work to bring policy to what we call a sufficiently restrictive stance, which really in simple terms means the level required to bring inflation down and restore price stability, we will need to be mindful. Adjusting too little will leave inflation too high. And adjusting too much could lead to an unnecessarily painful downturn. There is very broad agreement that there is some kind of lag that there is not an immediate adjustment of the real economy to our policy changes, and that it can at least take several quarters. We're just getting a lot of dialogue, aren't we? I mean, uh, this is a Fed that's just talking its way 
to where it's going to arrive. I mean, we've had so many changes from day one where transitory inflation became something more entrenched with different events. And uh, I think we're just hearing an explanation of how this progresses. There is no certainty that the aggressive rate hikes that uh, wind down to 50, then down to 25, do the trick. There may be more 25 basis points or more 51s required if we have stubbornly high inflation. And we were talking around the set when we all uh, rocked up on Monday morning about how busy it was out around the UK, around London in particular, over yeah. the weekend. That despite all the aggressive action, supposedly an economy in recession, that we've not seen the demand switch. And if that's the case, states, I need don't see demand start to pull back after a series of rate hikes. And don't forget, we've had a very blunt instrument here, so many are waiting for it to take effect. What if it doesn't? And I think you've got a Fed here just trying to keep open the lines of communication. I, I, I would, I, it's great that I'm not a trader and that I do this job instead. Maybe people say I should go back to my old job. Maybe I'm not good enough for this one. But, but the fact of the matter is, I didn't see anything to trade on the back of what those excellent policymakers had to say. They didn't say anything that was wrong. They didn't say anything that was out of the box. They said eminently sensible dialogue. But I didn't see anything that I could trade on the back of it. And that's probably great that I'm not involved in that business anymore because I would just be sitting on the sidelines going, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing nothing. I didn't hear anything. Uh, what I did hear yesterday is that consumer demand for credit cards remains stunningly strong. And this is where I see a, um, a, a contradiction and a concern. I keep seeing the surveys that say the household balance sheet is stunningly strong. And then on the other hand, I keep seeing the surveys that say that consumers are accumulating credit card debt at a record pace. So let's just put those two again. But household balance sheet in the US remains very strong. But at the same time, apparently, and I believe the data, consumers are putting more money on credit cards and getting more cards than they have ever done. Something doesn't smell right. It's the psychology here, isn't it? That if you've still got a job that you're still wanting to spend because you're still in that post-pandemic type of uh, behaviours where you just feel good and you want to get back out there. You want to spend on services. You, you want to buy extra things. on a things. credit card? The average credit card rate now in the United States, according to Bankrate, has climbed to over 19%. That is including data going back to uh, 1985. 19.04. Who in their right mind, if they have choices, borrows money at 19.04%. You've opened the door of, uh, to have a conversation around financial literacy. I think that's quite different to consumer spending patterns. I mean, we've seen over the years uh, that not. people are I not always not. responsible. Do you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I hope that people understand the ramifications of an interest rate and what circa 20% means for their balance sheet. We will get more clues, by the way, um, and we'll get the Federal Reserve minutes for the last meeting. We get those this week as well. We're getting tomorrow. Part of me also wonders whether this was a China story. Don't forget, if we talk about inflation, we've got effectively base rates starting to come off at some point. But with China in lockdowns and more restrictions, and if demand stays high, then effectively you may still get some problems down the line. And I think that's an issue as we have this expectation that inflation will play ball eventually. But let me take you back to the markets and what we've got uh, NASDAQ, SP, Dow all tracking weaker. We had a reversal of four tenths on the SP the Nasdaq trading down by just over 1%. And if you look at big moving names, it was Apple to the downside. It was uh, a play for consumer staples over consumer discretionary. So even if we are seeing people on uh, Main Street not play it safe by bolstering those uh, balances on credit cards, investors on Wall Street playing it safe yesterday and the way they're positioned around the consumer. But uh, one of the big moves to the upside was Disney stock. And this was on the return of Bob Iger. Of course, more reporting out overnight that there was some sort
sort of revolt among executives demanding change and uh, Bob Iger was returned as a result. A six plus percent pop for Walt Disney on expectations that he can turn the ship around when it comes to revenue. Uh, Dell and Zoom, two stocks moving in after hours trade and uh, you can see what they look like if we show you a board. Otherwise, I can just explain them to you. Uh, effectively, uh, Dell came out with better than expected third quarter numbers and we had uh, the likes of Zoom disappointing on its guidance. So some weakness cropping up in the names of both companies. Uh, let me take you to Treasuries. Early on, we are seeing uh, 3.79% on the yield so we've just drifted off a tad 4.5 is where we're tracking at the short end of the curve the dollar we had a fairly strong rally in the session yesterday dollar though uh still supported morning session on uh some of the trades just not the ones i'm showing you sterling versus the dollar is uh, currently higher so managing to claw back some of those trades euro also gaining territory and uh, we are seeing a fade versus the uh, safe haven swissy to the wti brent and gold trade on the commodities a uh, big story kicking around about whether there could be some form of a change around opec strategy after that production cut although that has been uh, swiftly denied by some quarters of opec plus the brent price this morning is uh, still tracking high up about a third of a percent and gold prices putting in uh, an early stretch into positive territory to the asian markets we showed you some of the chinese markets uh, which were patchy before on the back of these COVID restrictions in particular the hong kong market still down 1.6 percent green across from china australia and to the the market in tokyo bouncing six tenths of one percent the only calls in europe after what was a slightly weaker session yesterday we fell by uh, a fraction on the benchmark we are chasing green Areas, so we uh, look like look like we will be parking some of that red ink aside. Steve. So there is good news, uh, if ever I have to go back to trading, that I understand oil better than I understand treasuries uh, and forex. Because basically, if you think there's going to be more supply, the market sells off. If you think there's going to be less supply, the market rallies, and that is exactly what happened yesterday. Uh, so coming up on the show, crude recovers as Saudi Arabia comes out against the report. A report, by the way from an excellent team that knows OPEC very well. So I think that's fascinating. Comes out against this report that OPEC Plus is weighing an output hype. Plus, I'll do this. Yeah, the podcast. It's a winner, apparently, I'm told. China's COVID situation, as well as the impact on markets. Check out the Squawk Box podcast, led by Karen Chen. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Right, well, what a session it was. Crude prices have now recovered after Saudi Arabia denied a report that OPEC Plus is discussing an increase to output. The country's energy minister, His Royal Highness uh, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, said the current cut of 2 million barrels per day would continue until the end of next year and that the group could further reduce production if necessary to balance the market. Now, on another note, Goldman Sachs' global head of commodities research, Jeff Curry, told our U.S. colleagues there is no clarity over the G7 oil price cap against Russia. 
What we have seen right now, and part of adding to the downside price risk, is that the Russians are dumping a lot of oil on the market right now. Um, and we look at inventory at sea, it's up 25 million barrels. So they're trying to get as many barrels into the market before the price cap and ban goes into effect on December 5th, um, which is, again, putting downward pressure on the market. Hadley, I have nothing but the highest respect for Summer Said and Benoit Faucon, who are the two journalists who are, are part of the very, very strong Wall Street Journal team. I've known them both for the best part of 15 years. I think they're brilliant journalists. They didn't pull this one out of thin air. What's going on? Absolutely, Steve. I mean, somebody is talking to them. One question that I have is the same. Who does it benefit, obviously, for price volatility to drop as much uh, as five plus percent? One of the big questions, of course, going forward is whether or not Saudi Arabia is going to be able to corral all of these OPEC plus members come this meeting on December 4th. Because as you say, someone is obviously speaking to the journal, whether it's Iraq, whether it's the UAE, who they say they are not, or whether it's Russia themselves. Because that comment from Alexander Novik, let's not politicize the energy markets. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's exactly what Vladimir Putin has been doing for over a year now, politicizing energy. One of the questions as well that I have on this one is how quickly, frankly, uh, the Saudis came out to deny that this was something they were even considering. His Royal Highness essentially saying, not only are we not uh, thinking of putting more oil on the market, this isn't something we would even discuss in between meetings. And the UAE following suit very shortly thereafter and stating pretty much the same. Taking a step back, though, remembering what we've got coming up, we have this EU ban on Russian oil. We have this conversation, as you say, suggesting that a G7 price cap is on the way. Um, when I had the chance to speak last week with the ex-Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, he said, this is the most ridiculous idea I have ever heard. He's like, not only is it not feasible, but frankly, it's something that we wouldn't even have considered in our time in office as a direct result of, of having no idea how one would even begin to implement such a thing. So you've got a lot of questions outstanding on that one. You've got, as Jeff Curry was saying, a lot of Russian crude being dumped on the market. And at the same time, you have folks sitting out in this part of the world talking about China, what we've seen happening over the last couple of days with Beijing, another clampdown. They're shutting malls. They're shutting museums. They're totting down the country once again and what that impact could be, frankly, on the market. So a lot of outstanding questions. But you've got to wonder, though, this is the second time the Wall Street Journal has come out with a report that the Saudis and the UAE have blatantly denied. And the last one, of course, was that major two million barrel per day cut that we saw just a month or so ago that really upended not just um, folks in Washington in terms of the political dynamics of it and in Europe as well, but also the relationships out here in the Gulf Arab countries, because there was at that time a lot of rumor that there were breakaway countries like Iraq, like the UAE, that really didn't want uh, to make this cut. Now, they came out later, the UAE specifically saying we're on board with His Royal Highness, we're on board as a member of OPEC Plus, but at the same time, uh, yet again, a great reporting out of the Wall Street Journal and, frankly, a lot of questions about who they're talking to and why those people don't feel comfortable, perhaps, speaking up. Steve? Well, Ian, and ask you a question around the, the links to uh, the U.S. here because we heard it back in October that the administration would be looking to replenish the SPR if prices were around 62 to uh, $72 per barrel with the price around 80 right. at this stage. What's the link here? Is there one at this point? It's fascinating because this is exactly what I asked Amit Tashin, the special envoy for energy, or not envoy, now he's coordinator, uh, because apparently to be an envoy, Karen, you have to be approved by both houses of Congress. So he's now just a coordinator. But what he told me at the time was in, when we look to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, we do this uh, hopefully at $70 or less. 
One of the other questions that I had for him at that time, as you know, was whether or not this was an administration that would be willing to continue some kind of a dialogue with Saudi Arabia, even with all of the politicization of this decision. Um, and he said, of course, we're always willing to speak to Saudi Arabia. We're always willing to speak um, to the UAE as well. He was there on that stage, remember, at Adipec just a couple of weeks ago, having a very cordial conversation. Meanwhile, we understand the Russian delegation was in Abu Dhabi, but not attending the conference because of potentially a conflict there in terms of who could be seen where who could be in the audience, who could be on the stage, as well as the fact that they just didn't want at that time to throw more uh, wood on the fire of this political mess, frankly, that the Gulf Arab countries found themselves in as a direct result of this decision, uh, even though they said they'd been warning Washington for many weeks that this could possibly be the case. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.